Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And I'll start us off uh, and read that for you while you're turning there. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now I read that right away because I want to get your gears turning. I want to get you thinking on this. In today's sermon, we will study death, life, and the idea of being born again. More specifically, we will answer the following questions. Number one, just how evil is man? What is man like before he is born again? Number two, what is man like after being born again? Number three, what is the kingdom of heaven? Now that might not sound important, but yeah, let's see, was it verse five? Yeah, in verse five, it mentions the kingdom of heaven. And this is an important proof text to the uh, phrase being born again. So in order to define being born again, we also have to define the kingdom of heaven. Number four, how is man born again? Number five, when is he born again? Number six, I make the case that being born again is part of the package of eternal salvation. Number seven, we'll have review questions, and number eight, we'll have summary. And to give you a quick synopsis, today we will discuss that fallen man is totally wicked, completely depraved, and in need of a savior. We will learn that being born again is the receival of the Holy Spirit from the Father who grants you a new heart that has the ability to love God and perform good works for him. We will see that man being born again can only happen through the Spirit, having nothing to do with the works of man. We will see that man is born again according to the Father's will and not a minute sooner. It is unpredictable by man's means. We will see that being born again is part of the package of eternal salvation. And lastly, we will ask some questions. Number one, how evil is man, and what is he like before being born again? If you want, you can turn with me to Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And as uh, supporting verses, I also have Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And we'll get to those in just a minute. Now, if you read this carefully, we see that every man to ever be born of the flesh is to be conceived in sin. The only exception is the divinely born Jesus Christ. 
We are born having no knowledge of God, no understanding of God. We do not seek God. And the scripture says they are together become unprofitable, which means by nature, we are not only now haters of God, we will always be haters of God. We will never naturally develop into someone who can seek God or want God. Further, in the New Testament, God says it is impossible for us by ourselves to discern, which means to understand in this case, spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14. What does all of this mean? They, and I mean us, are only evil all the time. We do not want God in our hearts. He's unwanted and meaningless to us. Because we are only evil all the time, it will take an outside force to change anything. You see, this is not only a law of physics. It is also a spiritual law. Matter cannot change unless acted upon by a person or process outside of itself. And that goes for our hearts, too. And I'll go on to prove that as, uh, as we read more. A heart on its own will never transform. It will remain evil for the rest of its pitiful life on earth. You see, these passages describe the state of man without the Holy Spirit, that we cannot want, love, or seek God. They describe what we are like in our flesh. Colossians 2.13, Romans 6.23, and Ephesians uh, 2, verses 1 and 5 actually provide us a name for this state. This state is called death. We are dead in sins. We are altogether dead, dead in heart, flesh, and mind. If it wasn't clear enough, we cannot please God nor choose God. Only through the Spirit can we please choose and want God. Romans 8, 5 through 9, John 1, 12 through 13, Hebrews 11, 6, and once again, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Further, using Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Titus 3, 3, Colossians 3, 5, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 as our references, man is subject to the following wickedness. Variance, which is any unholy change. Uncleanness, drunkenness, adultery, fornication, evil concupiscence, lasciviousness, inordinate affection, effeminacy, that's a modern one, sodomy, idolatry, witchcraft and heresies, envyings, covetousness, thievery and extortion, murder, hatred, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, reveling in malice, foolishness, disobedience, and pleasure-seeking. And I can thus preach with full confidence that man on his own is totally dead, incapable of doing or wanting anything of spiritual or eternal value, desperately in need of life. But who would give life to people such as us? Number two, what is man like after he is born again? Well, firstly, we're going to break this one down because we, do, uh, we have to do a little bit of legwork before we can actually get to that. For, we're firstly going to dis, uh, discuss what Christ has already done for us in order for us to understand what uh, being born again really means. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, on careful reading, you'll notice that the whole Trinity is available in that passage. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all operating in the changing of our lives. 
And my supporting verses, so again, I have two or three witnesses, are Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now, in breaking this down, we're going to start with A, what do Christ and the Holy Spirit do? The first thing you'll notice is the cooperative work of the Holy Ghost and Jesus functioning together as a package deal, both participating in different aspects of the same eternal salvation, both also working to raise you up to heavenly places, to sit next to Christ in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Ephesians 2.6. The work of the Holy Spirit and Christ are inextricable. You cannot hardly sever the two at all. In our passage, Titus says the Holy Ghost washed us clean of sin, and Ephesians, the other one I uh, cited, uh, says that we are quickened, which is to say we are given new life, a resurrection of sorts changing us into a new creature, the very act of new creation. Now the old corrupted nature is gone and we are free. Though the flesh remains carnal, this work cannot be undone. Romans 8, 35 through 39, we're going to quote that one a lot and we will read it before the end. And uh, John 10, 27 through 29. And we know this work cannot be undone because the Father does not work in a world of horseshoes and hand grenades. He doesn't hold his thumb up and measure saying, Good enough for government work. He doesn't do that. His work is accurate and final, authoritative, and he seals the work as complete with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and Ephesians 4, 30. On Christ's end, his mercy was rich and was abundant to us. Verse 6. And Christ, the totally independent and self-sufficient man, died for us. You know what that abundance means? It means you can never exceed it. You cannot outsin Christ's mercy. You cannot outplead the judge who called you justified, which is to say he declared you not guilty. Further, you have been legally acquired as an adopted heir of eternal life in heaven, sharing an inheritance with the Son, and not one bit of this is by your works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And again, no power of hell can take it away. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Having received the Holy Spirit, this is a B, the second section in this breakdown. Having received the Holy Spirit, man can do good works. Now that we have new life in our spiritual bones after being born again, man is now capable of doing every good work that God ordained us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. And not only that, we are equipped to resist temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13 and 1 Corinthians 13.4-6. None of which we, uh, which we could do without the Holy Spirit, because we were dead. Further, we are now equipped to fight the very principalities and powers that invisibly rule mankind if we only adorn the spiritual armor of God and the sword of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. With it, we can tear down unholy strongholds, build up new ones, and give, up, uh, give answers for the hope that is within us, which we derive from the word of God. C, not only man's works are new, but also his heart is new. You see, it is not only man's works alone that change. His heart must change as well for it to be any good. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 and James 3, 17 through 18 outline the evidence of man receiving the Holy Spirit, showing that he can be loving, joyous, peaceful, and peaceable, long-suffering, gentle, good, faithful, pure, easily talked to, and full of good mercy and good fruits. Additionally, 1 Peter 1, 3 says that we have hope, joy, and peace all together. From the Holy Spirit. But these fruits are unavailable to us without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to have them. 
And there are additional passages that call out specifically faith as a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, 2 Peter 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9, and combine that one with Hebrews eleven six. And this means, of course, that you did not muster up your own faith to choose God. God had to gift it to you in order for you to muster it in the first place. Now, if the Holy Spirit only gave us works, we would be serving a works-based God. But God didn't want only our works. He wanted us to be yoked together with him in a living and abiding relationship where your burdens are shared with him. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 29. And he likewise wants your unfailing trust through faith, which by nature uh, will turn into good works. James two seventeen. And D, finally, not all children who are born again will look the part. You will find men and women who are born again, but do not look or act like it. Solomon is a great example, who at first was the wisest man to ever live, 2 Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. And yet later in life, he married somewhere around 1,000 women who led his heart into heavy paganism, 1 Kings 11, 3 through 4. And Samson, who was born again, Hebrews eleven thirty two, but was a mess his whole life and was hardly discernible from a godless Gentile. Romans 1, 18 through 32 gets even more specific and goes on to describe a child of God who becomes reprobate. What is reprobation? Well, your 22nd definition is that if you rebel against God so much that he, as a father, finally steps back and says, Okay, kiddo, you do, you do things your way, and we'll see how it turns out. I do not believe this is permanent. I can't believe it's permanent. It is unlike God for it to be permanent. As seen in the prodigal son where the father backed off and let the son fulfill his whole heart's desire. But when the son repented, you see the son, for, um, for any of those who don't remember, the prodigal son, of course, took a large sum of money from his dad, went away and spent it on uh, wine and women, and um, found himself to be utterly miserable. He went back to his father, hoping only to be a servant. And the father, once since, was knocked into the boy, and he saw the boy at a distance. The father ran up to the son and embraced him. This passage also states explicitly that the elect child of God can know God, but glorify him not. It says they became vain in their imaginations, meaning at first they had God in their heart and mind, but then they gave him up and their hearts were darkened. Sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? This doesn't mean they lost their eternal salvation. Again, I stand on Romans eight thirty-five through 39. It means they stopped serving God and God for a time, only for a time, backed away until one way or another their senses were given back to them. So what's the message here? A born-again child of God can easily not act like a child of God. The human heart can become callous and unavailable under many layers of dead skin, either through abusing or being abused. We also frequently reflect the image of our own fathers and men in our lives back onto God. So if you had an especially horrible male role model, even if you're born again, you can have a dead relationship with God simply because your heart does not want to open up to the potential pain which you have already received. After all the abuse, lies, neglect, and manipulation, your heart can grow calloused, stony, and it takes the great physician to fix such a heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 31, 33, Hebrews 8, 10, and Psalm 147, 3. It is important to note that just because God adopts you does not necessarily mean you are intimate with him. And just because you are married to someone, as we will be married to Christ, well, the church rather will be married to him, that doesn't necessarily mean you love them. Spiritual fruits are ultimately only in evidence. 
is only God can search the hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, 11, 20, and 20, 12, and also 1 Chronicles 28, 9. It is not for us to determine if someone is born again or not, as that is in God's domain. It is merely for us to observe the presence of fruit. However, being born again is the only way your heart and mind will change. Number three, what is the kingdom of heaven? Now in John 3, 1 through 8, our primary passage, the phrase kingdom of God is used. And if we want to have a full and perfect definition of born again, we must define kingdom of God. So we're going to go ahead and break it down. The Bible first teaches that the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are synonymous. They are different phrases, but they mean the same thing. Matthew 4.17 and Mark 1.15 are what is called a synoptic pair. Now, synoptic simply means that in the Gospels, they, of course, tell the same stories from different perspectives. And sometimes when they're telling the same story, they'll, of course, use different words. These are called synoptic pairs. And as a pair in Matthew 4.17, it uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Mark 1.15 uses the phrase kingdom of God. And compared to each other, they mean the same thing. The same thing happens in Luke 7.28 and Matthew 11.11. And John is unique in that it only uses the phrase kingdom of God in chapter 3. But given it is used in the same way and given the scripture interprets itself, we ought to presume that it means the same thing as it does elsewhere. Now let's hit some fast facts on the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Number one, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven with a bad heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. Number two, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have a good heart. So it's not good enough not to sin. You have to also do good works, which again come from faith. Matthew 5, 20, and Matthew 18, 1 through 5. And these people will naturally gravitate towards the truth. Mark 12, 28 through 34, and Matthew 22, 34 through 20 are another synoptic pair. And they show a scribe who at first asks a gotcha question to Jesus. He's asking a lawyer question. He's trying to catch Jesus. But then, after Christ uh, answers his question very well, the man seems to humble himself just a little bit and give just a little bit of credence to Christ's authority. This is why Christ said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And in John 3, 1 through 8, we see Nicodemus, who genuinely wants to understand Christ, who he is, and what he's doing. Now, Christ says that Nicodemus can see the kingdom of heaven, but he's not necessarily in it. And maybe he's not even near it. Who's to say? But we know for a fact that he can see it. So we know someone seeking the kingdom of heaven, we know what they will look like. They will try to have a good and humble heart. They will try to keep themselves pure from the world and will naturally gravitate towards the truth. Second, we have a whole bunch of technical information on the kingdom of heaven. Number one, we have the time. The kingdom of heaven is near to us only after Jesus' ministry started. So even if it existed technically beforehand, because Christ is eternal, and I'm not going to get into that bag of worms, we know it was only brought close to us with Christ's appearance on earth. Matthew 3, 2, 4, 17, and 10, 7. The material, the kingdom of God, is not made of flesh and blood. It is spiritual. Romans 14, 17, and John 18, 36. The location, the kingdom of God is within you. It's inside of your heart. Luke 17, 20 through 21, and John 18, 36 again. Finally, operation. 
The kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, used in this way, are conditional based on your will and your purity. Luke 16.16 16, uh, 16, 16 says that a man must repent to, uh, in order to enter the kingdom of God, and that's a choice. Mark 1.15 says that man must believe the gospel to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that's a choice. Now, we know that this differs from being born again, which we will find, as we read, is actually not a choice at all. And connected, of course, is eternal salvation, which is final, authoritative, only happens once, and cannot be undone, which is, to a certain degree, the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. Notice the relationship of the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God to your heart. How you must first, of course, have your heart transformed to see, seek, and ask for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, where does that transformation come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Additionally, if the kingdom of heaven involves your heart condition and Jesus Christ both, and based upon how the phrase is used all throughout the Bible, I think it is fair to define the kingdom of heaven as a deep and abiding relationship with Christ that exists within your heart. Now, this is a figure of speech. It's not a literal phrase. It's not meant to be taken literally. Christ's focus was never on a literal kingdom anyway. His focus was on a present and internal kingdom, not a literal one. Number four, how is man born again? Let's start with some review real quick. Man is totally depraved, which means he is only capable of sinning. Without the Holy Spirit, he will never want God or choose God. Man with the Spirit is a new creation. He is capable of all good works, including the ability to accept slash dedicate his life to God. Without God's intervention... You'd never stop being dead and would never worship God in spirit and truth. Remember how an object, stays, an object at rest stays at rest? That's true of physical matter, and it's true of spiritual matter as well. When something is dead, it stays dead, and only the Creator can give it life at that point. And finally, the kingdom of heaven is a deep and abiding relationship with Christ, and no one uh, can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. All right, we're going to read through John 3, 1 through 8 one more time to refresh your memory on what it says. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, and it also says of flesh down below, this is to say physical birth, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You need two births to enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, that means where it wants. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. It's unpredictable. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Now let's recap what we just read to make sure it's... Um, make sure that we're following along. Nicodemus can see the kingdom of God. He sees that Christ is a man of God and is doing things that no one else can do, but he can only see it because he is born again, verses two through three. If he wasn't born twice, he couldn't see the kingdom, nor would he care if he couldn't. 
Christ says that once you have been born twice, first from the womb of water and flesh, and second of the Holy Spirit, which is being born again, only then are you allowed to enter the kingdom of God, verses 5 through 6. The second birth, is compa- uh, and by second birth I do mean being born again, is compared to five different things. In, in verse 8, it's compared to the wind. It is compared to uh, the first birth, your birth of flesh, in verses 6 through 7. And it is also compared to being revived from the dead, Romans 8, 8 through 11, Ephesians 2, 5, and Colossians 2, 13. It is also, additionally, uh, compared to circumcision, Romans 2, 29, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. And finally, creation, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Now, what connects all five, of these th- all five of these things? All five of them have a helpless recipient where the force upon them is unstoppable. A baby breaching the womb cannot say no, nor can the mother. A man on a windy day cannot stop the wind. Lazarus could not stop Christ from raising him. A baby cannot stop his parents from circumcising him, which was Israel's custom up until that point. And finally, absolutely nothing created uh, is ever asked for consent before it is created. The creation is not consulted. God simply creates according to his own will. In the same way, man has no power over being born of the Spirit. Absolutely none. Further is my supporting text. John 1, 12 through 13 directly states that you are not born again of your flesh's will, which is all you have before the Holy Spirit enters you, but you are born again by the will of God. And James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.3 and Romans 10.17 say that we are born again by the word of God, not by our words and accepting him. Number five, when is man born again? You say, okay, fine, you've convinced me. Being born again is God's choice, but when does he choose to do it? Simply put, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.5. More deeply, when God does a work, he always does it according to his own will. Psalm 115.3, 135.6, and Isaiah 46.10. And easily dozens more citable packages. God operates according to his own will. And thus far, we have determined that man and his deeds have absolutely no interaction with the saving grace of God. You may protest, but did God leave out any details? Let's hit some more specific and technical points to flesh it out more. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says that we are given life by him, according to the riches of his mercy and not by ourselves. And verses 8 through 9 says again that it is a gift from God. James, and it's not a gift from you to yourself. And actually, I want to real quick turn to Ezekiel 16, 4 through 6. And this is uh, Ezekiel speaking. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Go and tell them. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth in thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother was an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. The umbilical cord was still attached. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. When born, no one cared to sanitize the baby. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No one cared at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field, to the loathing of thy person, in the day that thou wast born. And when I, God, 
passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, and said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live. Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live. God is here speaking, of course, to Jerusalem through Ezekiel. But according to God, Jerusalem at one point was dead. And God told them, Live. All it took was one word, and according to God, they were alive. John 3, 1 through 8 says that, it is the, uh, says that the wind blows where it listeth, which again means wherever it wants, and that man cannot know where or when or on whom it will blow, and that the Father sends the Holy Spirit in the exact same mysterious, uh, mysterious way. It is completely unpredictable. Romans 9, 15 through 16 says that eternal salvation is by the will of God who only has the power to show that level of mercy. That being said, I do want to quickly hit on one important question, as I want to make sure that your peace passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. You may ask, what does God do with babies who die in the womb? This is a legitimate concern, and if not answered properly, your peace will be Walmart level, generic, purchable, purchasable, and disposable, and we want a name brand peace. Remember, brothers and sisters, John the Baptist was actually filled with the Holy Ghost and leapt in his mother's womb when Christ was nearby, again, while he was in the womb. Luke 1.15 and Luke 1.41. Romans 8.35-39 teaches that no power of man or of the devil can take away one of God's elect children. And John 10, 27 through 29 and 18, 9 teaches that God has not, nor will he ever lose one of his sheep. And these inherently mean that not even abortion or miscarriage can separate you from God. Don't you know? God knit you in the womb. Psalm 139, the entire chapter is on that subject. Jeremiah 1, 5 and Isaiah 49, 5. And not only that, he knows every hair on your head. Luke 12, 7. He is with his elect children every step of the way. And this also branches to the old and the mentally feeble, and the young and the mentally disabled. Doesn't this give you peace? That God would hold all matters of eternity in his very hands gives me peace to go about my life with, without worrying about what tomorrow holds, because I know who holds tomorrow. Now my peace passes all understanding because God's ways are above my ways, and his thoughts are beyond my thoughts, Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. And the context of this passage is his mercy, meaning his salvific mercy on mankind is far above and greater and greater and beyond what mine would ever be. I can comfortably tell you that he has righteously saved more people than anyone else could, for his mercy is greater than ours and it endureth forever. You are stricken with variance, which means your ways change for the worse. So if you were right now given omnipotent power, then whatever good work you do, you yourself would undo it eventually, by definition. Have you ever lost a friendship because you did something dumb? It's because you naturally undid something good. That is our nature. That is the nature of man. But the nature of God is to never change. Hebrews 13.8 and James 1.17. I do not need broken band-aid doctrines like the age of accountability, which, by the way, has not a single verse to its name in the entire Bible. I have the Bible itself to account for the mentally feeble, who maybe perhaps never knew God or perhaps in their old age forgot God. Number six, I will make the case that being born again is part of the package, 
of eternal salvation. As we discussed earlier, in Titus 3, 5 through 7, the Holy Spirit being in you is part of that package deal, which also includes Christ shedding his blood for you and the Father orchestrating these things. Which means if Christ shed his blood for you, if Christ shed his blood for you, you will at some point receive the Holy Spirit and be set on the path to eternal glory. Titus 3, 5 through 7 cannot have a different interpretation. Those two things go together permanently. This means at some point, the spirit who is eternal will enter you and give you eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, again as a second witness, states directly that you must be quickened with Christ, given life with Christ in order to enter heaven, knowing that the quickening, the giving of life, happens by the Father giving us the spirit. Romans 8, 11. Number seven, review questions. I have some review questions to rhetorically ask you and for you to answer in your own heart and mind as we exit from this message. Number one, how can you accept Christ into your heart if you cannot seek, want, fear, or understand God in your heart? This is a question that demands an answer. Romans 3, 10 through 18, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3 paint man as a destitute and unchangeable sinner. How can you accept Christ into your heart if your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Jeremiah 17, 9. Do we really only accept God on an intellectual level? I mean, that's all that's left if our heart is taken away and our heart can't accept him. So for the uninitiated, please understand that this church is not Calvinist. But for the Arminian belief, you must, by definition, have an intellectual understanding of Christ. But is that what the Bible says? And again, what happens to the fringe cases of the people who cannot understand him because their brains are just so afflicted? Or to the people who never hear about him for lack of opportunity in unreached areas of the world? How can you accept Christ into your heart if salvation is not of the will of man or of the will of the flesh? And those are all you have. John 1, 12 through 13. How can you grant yourself salvation with your own words by accepting Christ into your heart, saying, Lord, I accept you into my heart? How can you do that if it is God's words that save you? James 1.18, Romans 10.17, 1 Peter 1.23, and again, one of my favorites, Ezekiel 16.4-6. How can you accept Christ into your heart if you're dead? A dead man cannot want, seek, understand, or do anything. And finally, how can you discern to ask Christ in your heart? if you cannot discern spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now time for some shotgun questions. I'm sure many of you have heard many parables uh, given on how to accept Christ into your heart, and some of this is going to touch on that. Can a dead man ask for help? Can a dead man grab a rope from a helicopter? Can a dead man interpret the Bible? Can dead men want anything at all unselfishly? Can dead men lost in an ocean grab onto a lifesaver that is thrown to them? Can dead men struggle against sin? Well, no, the Bible says you can't. You can only sin. Is the presence of the Holy Spirit a gift that is accepted, or is it a gift that is uninvited? Has God left any room for the belief that we can cooperatively save ourselves with him? Final words. Turn with me to Romans 8, 35 through 39. If you don't leave with anything, leave with this passage. This is one of the most peace-giving passages in all of the Bible. You need the whole Bible, but this passage alone carries so much weight. We can trust God with our eternal salvation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, and that includes demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not need to worry about our eternal salvation. Passed away parents, children, and friends are no challenge for Christ the Redeemer, who redeems to the uttermost. Hebrews 7:15. He will not forget, he will not tarry. The good shepherd will collect every last one of his sheep on the last day. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.